boys and girls are different. <laughs> That's funny, right? <laughs> Making a real amazing statement. Uh, I don't have a lot of jokes about the differences between boys and girls. I have some realities of experiencing boys. That's what I have. I just have a life of knowing a household with a bunch of boys. And then I have friends who have girls, and I talk to them, and it seems like our households are different. And it's like, is it me? Is it the parents? Is it the square footage? Or is it three boys and all their testosterone? And then this family with their girls and all of their items. As we've worked through Samson, what I've felt compelled to do is for us to think about the differences portrayed in the story, particularly in boys and girls, and thinking about how do I parent my boys in light of Samson, in light of, uh, of this story. Meaning, boys in general need God's wisdom for what their eyes see and what their hands do. In general, parents, if you have boys, you need to help them with God's wisdom for their eyes and for their hands. Now, in general, if you have gals, you need to help them with God's wisdom for their mouth, for their tongues. That's in general. But you should think about this, right? Do you think of the power dynamics that play in the story of Samson to lie? And how does Samson dominate? How does Samson coerce? How does Samson manipulate? How does Samson get the upper hand? Literally, he gets the upper hand physically by power, by his physical presence. How do, how does Delilah win in the end? Well, sadly, she's also threatened by men, physical violence. So to save her life and her family's life, what does she do, which is kind of in general? She uses her words to get at Samson, to pull it out of Samson. We're both tempted, and that's in general, but the truth is I think most of us are tempted by both and to deceive and manipulate and overthrow with our hands and, and with our mouth and with our words. Now, up to this point with Samson, we've seen the promise to his parents of who he's going to be. But then as we've grown up in, we've just talked about his self-control, the fights he gets into, and the temptation he gives into. And the self-control, you see that with his, the dead carcasses that he's not supposed to touch, his outrage, his lust. Now sometimes we read the Old Testament like an old western. And I think that's what some of you have felt throughout this story. Like, Samson's the good guy. He's the, he's, the, he's the hero. But those old movies portrayed a mythical world with simple characters and no gray areas. So much so, the bad guy is usually always wearing black. And the good guy is wearing something white. 
Why? You need to, everyone needs to know from the get-go. As soon as the story starts, we all need to know who's good, who's bad. Who to root for, who to root against. But the Bible deals with real life and real people, and people are complex, so are the stories about them. And this is a complex story. Shouldn't be surprised to find complicated personalities in the Old Testament, because that's what you find in your own life. <laughs> One of the most common errors in interpreting the Old Testament narrative is to assume that everyone in the hero, in the story, is the hero. That's what kids get. If, if you've read them other stories, and the main character always ends to be the hero, and then you read them the truth of Scripture from the Old Testament, what do they assume? They assume Samson the hero. They assume Samson's going to be the one to fall, to uh, emulate in some form or fashion. We're going to learn a lesson by the end. But this is simply not true. Many of the people are negative characters, and we need to be aware of this, because if we mistake a bad guy for a good guy, we'll actually be missing the point of the story. But then you have to keep in mind that excluding God, most all the characters have some mix of good and bad in them, right? No one comes out squeaky clean. Even the person that's described by God as a man after his own heart, by the end of his life, does not come out squeaky clean at all. The narrator expects us to read with uh, some sophistication, some discernment. He doesn't identify his characters with black cowboy hats and white cowboy hats. Military feats make Samson a warrior, but a hero? A hero? The narrator answers, unfaithful Israelite indeed. Is he a hero? No, no. But here's an unfaithful Israelite. The <laughs> By the fruit of his life, his heart is ex exposed as rotten. He ignores his call as a Nazarite. He violates all of the Nazarite requirements. He blatantly violates the law. He intentionally feeds his parents something unclean. He spends most of his time chasing after foreign women. He's self-centered and driven by the pursuit of his own pleasure. He's not the role model for your young boys. One author says he's perhaps a picture of squandered potential. One who wasted, one who wasted the power and opportunity that God had given him by pursuing self-gratification. I mean, when I've seen, and I think about the story of Aaron, and he, he becomes kind of this mascot of, or an example of fear of man. And here you've got Samson, just such an example of self-gratification, squandering potential. But again, this is what God said would happen for the fourth time I think in this story I'll read Deuteronomy 7 God says when this happens when you go to the land I've given you 
Deuteronomy 7.3, you must not intermarry with them and you must not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Because why? So very seriously, Samson, do not take Delilah. Why? They'll turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will swiftly destroy you. Instead, this is what you are to do to them. Tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their asher poles and burn their carved images. Why? Look at verse 6. For you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. To be holy. But if, if you do what you do, Samson, this is what's going to happen to you, and it does. You see the end of this man's life, a life of power without self-control, strength without discipline, might without love, crazy gifts, minimal character. And then the sad reality sets in. The Lord leaves him alone. Now, in thinking about these, I, I've talked about gifts and, and being crazy gifted and having no character and outpunting your character with gifts. And that's how so many leaders I think I've seen fall throughout the past 20 years in my life is because of that reality. And we've maybe gotten what we produce with our discipleship. Men and women leaders with very visible external gifts. And weak, feeble, dying inner men, inner women. But I want you to also think about your giftings. Now, when you think about Samson, you're like, well, I'm not gifted like Samson. I haven't ever done something like this. I've never just kind of been on a spur of the moment and then, you know, animal. I've never been in that. So the reality is some of us are lacking gifts. Remember what James said? You do not have because you do not ask God. And so if you're reading the story with us and you begin thinking about Samson, and you've been like, oh, these gifts, but I don't feel like I do have these gifts, I encourage you to ask for the gifts. To read through 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Read through uh, Romans 12 and, and look at the gifts and ask for the Lord to give you the gifts. Why? To serve the body out of love, to build up the body. This is what you've been wired to. This is why you've been also put in the community. One of the biggest reasons is not only the benefit to you, but also the blessing that you get to provide to the community by bringing your gifts to the table, your presence to them, that then is God's supernatural gift working through you to build them up in maturity in Christ. So if you're lacking, I'm praying for them. Meaning pursue them, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 says. Pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, earnestly. So be praying, asking for them if you're lacking in them. And then when you have them, ask every day for God to train you in the use of 
your gift. Ask him to increase the competency of your gift. Ask him specific things regarding your ministry so you'll have a way to uh, measure whether you're growing in your gift or not. Pray for opportunities to use your gift. But please, 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 pretty please, pray more for the growth of your character than the growth of your gift. Pray more for the growth of your character than the growth of your gift. It takes more than a great gift to render great service to God. It takes a great heart. It takes more than a great gift, even a massive one-off gift. To render great service to God, it takes a great heart. Samson seems to not have the heart to bear his extraordinary strength. And in the end, he lost his strength and his heart to a temptress. And like I've said, this is where I think we've seen leaders fall and friends fall and family members fall to the tempter because they do not have the character to bear their gifts. Meaning God gives us the gifts, but he also requires us to develop the strength of character to use those gifts to serve him and not ourselves. Send your gifts. Ask. Ask for them. Ask for help in it. Ask the Lord for mentors. For the Lord to send people in your life, in this church, that you can be around, connect with, that can help you. There are so many gifts in this body. One of my favorite jobs in this family is what I've done since Albuquerque, is connect. It's connect you with your need with a person in our church that has the gift. I love seeing that match. I love seeing that connection. Seeing God provide for what he exposes as a need. But then you really can't grow in anything unless you practice. <laughs> mature ones aren't those who mature ones are those who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Hebrews 5.14 says. One person says the only good athlete you'll ever see is a bad one who refused to give up. <laughs> I don't know what sports illustrated issue I pulled that from, but the only good athlete, that's probably just in a poster in my office, the only good athlete you'll ever see is a bad one who refused to give up. Meaning, hey, in your gift, keep practicing until you acquire the skills you need. This is very similar to what I say with my kids that start once or won't even start because they're fair, uh, scared of failure so they won't get into it. Or if they hit any resistance, any, any pushback in this pursuit of this skill getting better, they, they say, oh, I, I can't do it. 
I can't do it. No, no. Keep practicing. Keep practicing. Until you acquire, acquire the skill you need. Now, that's a little bit more about the gifts, but zoom out with me and think about where we're at in Judges. Where we're at in the era of Judges. What does God show in Samson about the state of the nation? I'm going to say that. The state of the nation. If God was given a state of the nation of Israel at this time, and he's telling the story of Samson, like a news article, this is the state of the nation. What is he trying to communicate? He's trying to communicate that holiness has gotten so bad, the deliverer is like the nations around them, immoral and vengeful. Outrage and lust abound. That's what he's communicating. That the Canaanization, now the Philistinization, the, the other nations and their worship gods and their habits of their life and, and what they love and desire and how they, what they choose has so infiltrated the Israelites, it was, it was kind of like a little town. Oh, then it became one of the tribes. Oh, then it grew larger. Now we're at the point where it's the one who's supposed to rescue them from oppression because they were idolaters. And what is he? Immoral and vengeful. He's just like them. Who's he to rescue them from? He's become just like them. So, my goodness, that was all intro. Headline number one, Samson jumps to action like normal, unaware he's alone. Look at verse 19. Samson jumps to action like normal, unaware he's alone. I backed up a little bit. Judges 16, verse 19. Then she let him fall asleep on her lap, Delilah, and called a man to shave off the seven braids of his head. In this way, she made... Samson helpless and his strength left him. Then she cried, Samson, the Philistines are here. When he awoke from his sleep, this is a few times into it. This happened a few times if you, if you haven't been with us. I will escape as I did, he said. I will escape as I did before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. happened a few times but now he's given up this intimate covenantal relationship he has with the Lord he's now given it over to his wife who's a Philistine who he's been commanded by his God not to marry because of what will happen and it's now happening and he jumps up to act to fight to thwart off these Philistines again And in reality, you, you should feel the weight of that statement. The Lord had left him alone. And he also should think about the reality of what that means. He jumps up ready to fight. And where he used to swing and toss five men aside at once, there's nothing there. There's no punch. There's no snap. There's no power there anymore. Unaware, the Lord has left him. Samson 
and King David do not stand alone. In this reality of being alone and being seduced, there are many lonely husbands, lonely wives, lonely single people who are primed, ready for a fling. Targets for an affair. Aching, yearning, longing for a few minutes of pleasure to medicate months, maybe years, of disconnection and emptiness. And I'm not saying just physically alone. I'm saying you may be married, you may be in a group, and you feel alone, and you're in that right, that prime spot to be seduced and pulled away into one moment or one night that can change the rest of your life. Where it may never become physical or sexual, but just the emotional connection can bring such an exhilaration. Bordering on intoxication is how Samson speaks of these ladies. And it's an intoxication that can lead to addiction, then destruction. And if you're like, well, that's not me. I'm connecting well in my marriage. I'm connecting well with my friends. <laughs> even when that's happening, even when we seem to be in a good place, we seem to be content and fulfilled in our singleness, our seducibility is ever-present. Now, the way forward is not to respond with paranoia or presumption, but wisdom and care and freedom in this. But maybe if you paint Samson as the good guy, you'll never see that you're as like him as you think you are, if you really are. Yeah, I mean, this took a lot of little moments that led to this moment, but there's also a decisive act that happens in one moment that changes the rest of his life. One night, it changed the rest of his life. Look at verse 21. The Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. They brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he was forced to grind grain in prison, but his hair began to grow back after it had been shaved. I wish I had an organ. That was supposed to be done, done, done. That's what that is. Do you hear that? Do you feel that? It's like, wait, wait, what? I mean, that's quick. That was a quick summary, Lord. But the Philistine seized him, gouged out his eye, brought him down to Gaza, bound him with bronze shackles. He's forced to grind grain in prison. So you get that real picture of where he is. But now he's there for a little bit, and his hair is growing back. But in one night, life, his life is transformed. You may flirt with the line for a while. You may cross the line. I don't know when it might happen. I can't even, like, make that promise that, hey, if you flirt with the line, but if you ever cross it, it that, that will be the moment that changes your life. I don't know, but if you're flirting with it at all, I know that in one moment, that can change the rest of your life. 
one moment can change the trajectory of your life. Samson goes from seeing what he wants and getting what he wants to now being blinded and shackled. He goes from coming and going as he pleases. I haven't mentioned that much throughout this story, but that's, that's how he operates. I'm going to go down to this place. I'm going to go to this place. Doesn't tell his parents sometimes. Lies to them. But he's always moving, on the move. And now what? He's in prison. And he's most likely walking in a circle to grind grain. He used to come and go, and now he only gets to walk in a circle. He goes from riddling and ridiculing others to being the one humiliated. One moment, one night, one act, one giving in to that temptation that you had been fighting for 10 years. But the reality is no matter, no matter, I'm sorry, no matter what, the world, news, TV, whatever, tells you, there are real consequences for your actions. There are. Now, a lot of us spend most of our time getting away from the consequences or doing things in a way premeditatively thinking about how can we eliminate as much of the consequences as possible. But let me just be frank with our kids at the least if no one else is hearing me. Kids, your choices have real consequences. And I'm not trying to scare you, but there is a reality in your teenagers, in your 20 years, that you can do things in one moment, in one night, that can then change the trajectory of the rest of your life. But now, Samson, his hair begins to grow back. And the Philistines see it, right? They know how hair works. If you leave it, it will grow, okay? It's a field of dreams. If you leave it, it will grow. That, they know that. Everyone knows that. That's what happens to hair. You, I think we can assume that they think he's broken his vow, and in their understanding of the world, in their understanding of the gods, they think they've broken his vow, so their god or this vow that he had that gave him his strength has broken forever, so his strength has left him forever, and they don't really understand and they really kind of underestimate because they really don't know who the God of the Bible is. Because the God of the Israelites, he's the Lord of the nations, he's the creator of all, and he's not like what they think. Michael Wilcock in the Message of Judges, he, he writes this, the Philistines knew nothing of the God who does the unexpected, think Ehud, whose strength is made perfect in weakness, Gideon, and who never breaks his word. That God had said that Samson would be a Nazarite to the day of his death. His abandonment of his servant could not be temporary. The promise was bound to hold, however Samson might despise it. There is grace abounding to the chief of sinners. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. 
but he didn't know who God was. And the reality is, it doesn't seem like Samson knows. But the promise is God's promise to Samson no matter the conditions, and it's until he dies. Samson's strings had not come from the vows he's made, but the vows that God has made. And so what he promised he would do, he does. We essentially are talking about Samson in light of the bridge of that last song. That my confidence is not in my faithfulness, but yours. I will rest not in the strength of my gravitas, the strength of my resolutions, the strength of my grit and determination. I will rest in your promises to do to me and for me what you said you will. Which takes us really to point of this moment that this is deeper than ethnic tribes this is about glory verse 23 now the Philistine leaders gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to their god Dagon or Dagon I can't say that it sounds like Dagon that's what I sound every time I read. Dagon. He's a dragon. Dagon. They rejoiced and said, Our God has handed over our enemy Samson to us. When the people saw Samson, they praised their God and said, Our God has handed over to us our enemy who destroyed our land and who multiplied our dead. This is about glory. This isn't ultimately about Samson and Delilah. This isn't really about Samson and the Philistines. This is about Dagon and Yahweh. And who's going to get the glory? And Samson is getting ridiculed, humiliated, and in such a way that the enemy is saying, yeah, 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 our God is so much better than God. Our God is so much better than you, Samson. He handed you. You're the one. What? A slate all of us? Oh, you ruined our fields? Like this, that's what they're, they're humiliating. Look at you now. Our God is the one who delivers. Our God is the one who rescues. That's what they're saying. So don't say yes to that. <laughs> but that is true if I was talking about Jesus. The battle for glory is between Yahweh and Dagon. And so this story encourages us to reflect with two little questions here. Whose praise is on your lips when you win? Whose praise is on your lips when you win? When you succeed, when you accomplish, whatever it is, when you stop, pause, rejoice, celebrate, give thanks, give credit, give recognition, Boast up someone's reputation. Whose praise is on your 
lips. Second thing this this story kind of makes me reflect on is, what do I crawl up to when I fell? What do I crawl up to when I fell? I didn't say who. Why? Because if I ask you who, you'll only think about people. If I ask you what, you may think bigger than that and think it could be people and also could be that substance or that presence of that phone or that person. What do you crawl up to when you fell? Next headline. Samson goes from judge to jester. Verse 25. When they were in good spirits, they're feeling good. This is what this means. I'll give you all the translations. They were in good spirits. It means they're feeling good. Uh, I think it's the NLT that says they're half drunk by now. The message says everyone was feeling high. And then the ESV, their hearts were merry. Like, oh, okay, that's what merry means, all right? Because if you read the ESV anymore, no, just kidding. Don't do that. That's a bad way to read the Bible in word searches. Sorry. But when they're, they're drunk, they're drunk off victory. I think they're drunk off of spirits. They're feeling high, and they say, Samson, bring Samson here to entertain us. So they brought Samson from prison, and he entertained them. They had him stand between the pillars. So a day ago, I can't say that because his hair's grown back, so it's been a little bit longer, but can you remember back with Delilah how scared they were of him? So much the, so they got to the point where they threatened her and her family, we're going to kill you and your family if you don't figure out the mystery of his strength so that we can finally take him over because he's ruining, may become the ruin of our whole nation. We've got to overthrow him. We've got to imprison him. They're tired of him, but now he's their joke, their comedy, their jester. When it says entertained, it's not like he did dances and tricks. They just brought him out and everyone laughed at him and mocked him and did essentially a roast. Just roasting him. And everyone's laughing and laughing and laughing and laughing. I didn't think about the emotional weight of this when I wrote this. Next line. Gear shift. Headline. Next. Semitic architects use Philistines as case study in universities. That's my headline. I'll let you read it again. So it takes a Semitic Jewish area, Semitic area. Okay. You're about to get it. Verse 26. Samson said to the young man, who is leading him by the hand, lead me where I can feel the pillars supporting the temple so I can lean against him. The temple is full of men and women. All the leaders of the Philistines were there and about 3,000 men and women were on the roof watching. Samson entertained them. He called out to the Lord, Lord God, please remember me. Strengthen me, God, just once more. With one act of vengeance, let me pay back the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson took hold of the two middle pillars supporting the temple and leaned against them one on his right hand, one on his left. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. He pushed with all his might, and the temple fell on the leaders and all the people in it, and those he killed at his death 
were more than those he had killed in his life. Then his brothers and his father's whole family came down, carried him back, buried him between Zor and Eshel in the tomb of his father Manoah. So he judged Israel 20 years. So he's got this unfaithful life, but by one act of faith, he destroys the enemy. More than he's done ever in his whole life in this one act at his death. It's his greatest achievement. <laughs> my tongue and cheek is, why, why is all the weight on those two pillars? Okay, that's just my joke. It's like, if there's 3,000 people on a roof and all your weights in this range, it's a problem. It's just a design problem. Okay? That's all I was trying to say. But do you see his prayer? It's, it, it's not, maybe not the most mature prayer, right? Can you be honest? But has he grown? I think so. I think so. Last time it was just, I'm thirsty, give me water. Now it's, Lord, Yahweh, Elohim, remember me, act on my behalf. He actually begins to, at some way, become aware of what God's calling is actually on his life, that he is supposed to be the wedge, the separator between the Israelites and the Philistines that they have essentially married, and he's supposed to come in and divorce them. And he finally realizes it in his life, ah, I'm that, let me be that, give me the strength one last time to take them all out. Because this, is, th th this isn't 3,000 <laughs> Privates, G.I. Joe, soldiers on the roof. This is the highest leaders. This is the political leaders. This is the military leaders. This is all them soldiers will play. And so he has his chance, opportunity to wreck, really, their nation with one act. And by faith, he does. So much so that that's where I believe Hebrews 11 can say and add in such good faith that this is Samson, one who's in the cloud of witnesses with us. Who's one of our cloud of witnesses to try to articulate it correctly. Why? Well, Hebrews 11.32 says, What shall more I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith, what they do? Conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. There's Samson quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign, army, foreign armies to flight. That there's the reality, the tension, and people even argue over. I don't have enough time to give you both sides, but argue over like, so he's unfaithful? Yes. But was this an act of faith? Yes. So can we whitewash his whole life and say he's just a faithful Israelite? No. But can we honestly like, see, yes, this is an act of faith. And really, no matter how small or new it was, what faith really matters is not the size or the belief in your faith, but actually the object of your faith is what really matters. And he's kind of like the thief on the cross next to Jesus at his death. 
saying, man, this, this is my life. And I'm putting words in his mouth at this point, but this is, I see that connection of like, this is the end of my life. And how does he goes out? He goes out in the most Jesus-y way he can. Arms extended, pillars pushed, defeating his enemies by his death. time for it okay so let me just get to the fun last headline a rescue with one final act and a faithful life do you, do you feel the difference just in that line I grew up with the idea of people that would say or talk about maybe on my deathbed. I'll ruffle that when I'm on my deathbed. And this, this story of Samson maybe kind of inspires that in you in a little bit. Like maybe it doesn't really matter how long I live unfaithfully. Maybe at the end I'll have a chance. I'll throw my one act of faith and then maybe I'll get thrown into Hebrews 11. And there's, there's no truth in that. And there's really no joy in that. So I want you to breathe in just that reality of a rescue with one final act and a faithful life, meaning Jesus is the faithful priest to sacrifice one perfect faithful life, and that was his own. Hebrews 3 says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling. Do you have that, Elliot? Hebrews 3. Who share in a heavenly calling. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He, Jesus, was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all God's household. Yeah? Awesome. Verse 3, for Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now, every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household as a testimony to what would be said in the future. Verse 6, but Christ was faithful as a son over his household, and we are that household. We hold on to our confidence and the hope in which we boast. We've thought a lot about Samson's life. Can I show you just three quick counterpoints from Jesus' life? Talk a lot about Samson with his self-control and his fights and his, his temptation, but think about these three quick vignettes from Jesus' life. Jesus exercised self-control to cleanse the temple rather than kill the idolaters. How do I know that? He's angry. He pauses, prays, makes a whip, and then goes back and executes with self-control. He just he, he gets them rid of them. He clears them out. He said, no, no, get out of here. 
Sorry, I left a little too much gap in the. Jesus responds to the fight. The Pharisees pick with him with parables, truth, and wisdom. Jesus resists temptation three times from the devil, not Delilah. If you think, you know, in literature, she's a seductress, right? She doesn't touch the devil. His title literally means deceiver and accuser. Jesus resists temptations, temptation three times when the devil is nagging at him to turn away from the Father, to not trust the Father, to not believe the Father is good. And so, who's Jesus? The true, faithful Israelite. What he said about Nathaniel is actually perfectly true about him. Jesus said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. (laughs) On the cross, Jesus brought the power of Satan to nothing, disarming him. When the enemy is laughing, humiliating, humiliating, mocking, thinking they have won over Jesus while he's arms stretched out on a cross, being the entertainment, public entertainment on a hill, while walker-bys are shaking their head and saying, oh, this is terrible. Cursed be that person. And in that public humiliation, he is actually cosmologically humiliating the devil and your sin and the concept of death. The reality and the concept. How do you do this? By taking away the penalty for our idolatry so that Satan could no longer successfully prosecute God's people. And he took away the power of sinner life, enabling the spirit to live in us to break the lure of idols in our hearts. So in Samson, we see that highlight, that imagery, that foreshadowing of, oh, we want this big final rescuing act, but we also want that to be preceded by a life of beauty and joy, meaning faithfulness. And that's what we get in Jesus. I'll end with this. John Calvin writes, Therefore, when you hear the gospel presenting you, Jesus Christ, in whom all the promises and gifts of God have been accomplished, remember this. Christ is Isaac, the beloved son of the father who was offered as a sacrifice, but nevertheless did not succumb to the power of death. He is Jacob, the watchful shepherd, who has such great care for the sheep with which he guards. He is the good and compassionate brother, Joseph, who in his glory was not ashamed to acknowledge his brothers, however lowly and abject their condition. He is the great sacrificer and bishop, Melchizedek, who has offered an eternal sacrifice once for all. He's the sovereign lawgiver, Moses, writing his law on the tables of our hearts by his spirit. He's the faithful captain and guide, Joshua, to lead us to the promised land himself. He's the victorious and noble King David, bringing by his hand 
all rebellious power to subjection. He's the magnificent and triumphant King Solomon, governing his kingdom in peace and prosperity. He's the strong and powerful Samson who by his death has overwhelmed all his enemies. So Father, we do not rest in our strength or even our gifting, but in our promises and your promises to us. And we do not boast or put our confidence in our resume then our confidence would be a roller coaster of emotion from despair to pride to despair to pride but our confidence is in your specific obedience your active obedience Jesus where you were faithful to your father in every relationship, in every action, every word, every deed, faithful. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the full, complete, rescuer we we really long for in your powerful and loving name we pray amen